Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, Storms. I want to encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 4 today. Mark chapter 4. And the title of the message is simply one word that we can all relate to, <laughs> storms. Can it, has anybody been through a storm lately? So this is going to be a practical message straight from the Word of God today. Mark chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 35, and we're going to finish the chapter today. Only six verses as we go verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. How's everybody doing today? Good, good. I'm doing well, but I don't want to lie. I am doing well. Um, been fighting the flu this week, but some of you guys know that and been praying for me, so thank you so much for your prayers. They're definitely sustaining and working. So Mark 4, 35 through 41. Everybody in the front row is like, he's got the flu. I'm moving to the back. <laughs> so if you found Mark 4, just say amen so I know you're there. Amen. All right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. So, Father, thanks that we can come together as your church family, joining millions of churches around the world that are worshiping you, honoring you, lifting you up, and studying your word. Father, we know that your word really is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that it so often illuminates the darkness that we find ourselves in. Your word is spirit. It's powerful. So I, I'm asking, Spirit of God, that you would take the Word of God and do what only you can do in the hearts of the people of God. I ask, Lord, that you would empower me to feed the sheep. And I'm praying, Lord, that well-nourished sheep would naturally reproduce and that you would build your church and the gates of hell would never prevail against it. Father, we pray for our future Christian school. We're asking, Lord, that not only would you build this church, but you would build that school in the future. And Lord, that the kids who come from all over the community, that they would receive an excellent education along with a strong biblical worldview. I pray that you would find us in this place not as casual Christians, but as committed disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, with no fear, no worry, no doubt, just faith, faith in you. And so, Lord, help us to accurately represent you by your power and grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. all right, well, I got to start the message asking you guys two questions and so the way you can answer it is simply by raising your hand. First question, how many of you guys enjoyed school growing up? Let me see your hands if you enjoyed school growing up. Wow, that's a pretty big number. That's, about, that's, that's the biggest number out of all three services, okay? So that's about 20% of you enjoyed school growing up. Now, second question, how many of you enjoyed taking tests while you were in school growing up? Yeah, I see about <laughs> eight hands. So everybody, look around. We all now see who the teacher pets were. <laughs> and those of you who raised your hand, just, just know uh, we all hate you, okay? <laughs> Man, you enjoy taking tests, really? Well, you know why? It's because you studied and you were ready. You see, as, as much as most of us did not enjoy taking tests growing up, our teachers, who were much wiser than us, they knew that tests were absolutely necessary. Why? Because what other way can a student demonstrate that he or she has really learned the material that's been taught to them unless they take and pass a test? What other way is a student going to demonstrate that they have learned math or English, science or history unless they pass the test. And so Jesus in the Gospels was and is today the master teacher. 
The disciples were his students. That's what disciple, part of what disciple means. It means learner. And so the disciples were his students, and throughout the Gospels, the Lord is constantly teaching his students kingdom principles. He's constantly teaching his students spiritual truths. Why? Here's why. Because soon Jesus knows that he's going to die for our sins, be buried, rise the third day, and then ascend back up to be with his Father. He had started a very important work on the earth, and he wanted his students, his disciples, to carry on the work. So it was absolutely vital that these disciples were able to demonstrate that they're learning the material that Jesus has been teaching them. So by this point in the Gospel of Mark, where we are at the end of chapter 4, we know, if you've been with us since the beginning, that Jesus has taught his disciples already many spiritual truths. So what does every good teacher do after they teach? They give a what? A test. And so today is all about a test. What does the test look like? Today's test looks like a fierce storm on the Sea of Galilee. So we're going to pick it up today in verse 35. It says that on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Evening had come. It had been a full day of ministry for the Lord, a full day of teaching the word, a full day of meeting with people and meeting their needs and doing miracles. And so by the end of this day, at the evening time, you need to know that Jesus was completely exhausted. Now, somebody who may be new to the Bible might say, well, how in the world can the Son of God get tired? I don't get that. Well, the reason the Son of God got tired is because not only was he 100% God, he was also 100% what? Man. And so as a man, as a human being, he experienced what we experienced. He, he experienced hunger and thirst and fatigue after a hard day. And so because the Lord wanted to get some rest, he said, let's go across to the other side of the lake. Okay, and so right now, Jesus is in the area with his disciples of Capernaum. They're on the north western shore of the Sea of Galilee. They're about to get into a boat, and they're about to cross over to the other side. Scholars believe most likely it's the area of Gergesa. Do you guys see that on the eastern shore? Okay, okay so they're, on, they're in Capernaum, and if you've been with us in our study, you know that the crowds in Capernaum have been absolutely massive. So he needs some rest. So what is he going to do? He's going to get in the boat, and go to the other side, on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, it's predominantly Gentile. The crowds are much smaller. It's a lot less population over there. And so he's going over to the area of Gergesa, which, by the way, is in the region of the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes. Of course, next week, what's, what's going to happen is we're going to see Jesus is going to land on that eastern shore, and he's going to be met by a man who has a legion of demons inside of him. Okay, so that's, that's next week's message. And so they get in the boat. They're heading from west to east. It says now in verse 36, and leaving the crowd, the big massive crowds in Capernaum, they took Jesus with them in the boat just as he was and other boats were with him. And so Jesus climbed aboard the boat. We know from verse 38 that he goes immediately back to the stern, the back of the boat. And I want you to picture the scene now of what's happening in our Bibles. The sun is setting. Evening has come. The wind is gently blowing, perhaps rocking the boat back and forth. The disciples, they're rowing from west to east. And what is Jesus doing? He's snoring. <laughs> We're going to find out in verse 38. He grabs a cushion. He grabs a pillow. He's in the back of the boat, and Jesus falls fast asleep. Now, before we go to the next verse, those of, of you who are new uh, that weren't with this explanation a month ago, you need to know the Sea of Galilee is actually a really big lake. 
It's about eight miles wide by 13 miles long, and um, it lies almost 700 feet below sea level. And so if you go with us to Israel, we're going to take a boat ride. This will be next May 2019. We're going to take a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee, and we're going to see the beautiful mountains and the beautiful hills around the Sea of Galilee. We're going to see the Golan Heights, for example, that extend from the eastern shore. And if it's a clear day, if there's no haze north of the Sea of Galilee there in the Hula Valley, we may even be able to see that beautiful picture, which is Mount Hermon. One of the things I love about the northern part of Israel, very much different than the southern part, the southern part um, is very dry and arid and lots of desert, but the northern part, very lush, very mountainous. I love mountains. Ever since my parents, for my senior trip in high school, took me to the Smoky Mountains, I had never seen a mountain before in my life. I grew up in Florida, and all of a sudden I see the Smoky Mountains, which aren't that big, but I was, I was hooked, and so I've, I've loved mountains ever since. And so one of the things I love about northern Israel is you get to see things like this. Mount uh, Hermon, which is about 60 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, beautiful Mount Hermon, which, by the way, is where the, the Jordan River begins, right around in that area, and then the Jordan River flows south into the Sea of Galilee, and then out of the Sea of Galilee keeps flowing south all the way down to the Dead Sea there in southern Israel, which, by the way, is the lowest point on the face of the earth. The Dead Sea is about 1,400 feet below sea level. But getting back uh, to the northern part of Israel, uh, we'll see all those beautiful mountains. We'll see Mount Hermon, which many scholars believe is the place where Jesus was transfigured. You remember that story with Elijah and Moses and so not, not Mount Tabor in the area of Nazareth, which a lot of people believe, uh, but no, rather Mount Hermon, that was the area that he was in in the northern part when he was transfigured. And so because of the geographical location of the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee was susceptible to these sudden storms that would uh, quickly come upon that big lake. Storms with a lot of wind, and the reason these storms would brew up so fast is because of all the mountains and the hills and the valleys. And so the, these valleys, these gorges, would act like wind funnels, and, and the wind would come whipping through the valleys, whipping through the gorges down into the lake. And that's exactly what's happening here in our Bibles today. So we're going to pick it up in verse 37 now. It says, and a great, not just any, a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already doing what? Filling. Uh-oh. And so as they made their way from the western shore to the eastern sh uh, shore, the sky grew dark, the winds picked up, they started to howl, the waves started to grow. And, and the boat that they were on starts to ascend and descend, rise and fall on the billows. Of course, when that happens in a storm, when you're out in the middle of a uh, eight mile by 13 mile and there's a, the big storms coming down and you're going up and down, what's gonna happen is that the waves start to crash over the bow of the boat. And so the disciples are there and, and the boat is filling up with water. So what do you do when your boat is filling up with water? You start to bail it out. And so they're frantically bailing the water out, but it seems like the more they bail, the more water comes in. And so the disciples are soaked, and they are freaking out. And I was thinking as I was preparing the message this week, man, wouldn't it be cool if next May when we go to Israel on our boat ride on the Sea of Galilee, if something like this happened... <laughs> We could experience the Bible. <laughs> Some of you are texting Matt Missiano and canceling your trip right now. No, we'll, we'll pray for good weather. But I, I don't want you to forget something. I don't want you to forget that the disciples were seasoned fishermen. I don't want you to forget that these disciples had fished this big lake for years. 
I don't want you to forget that these disciples were not wimps. They were used to storms. But this was not just a normal storm. The Bible says it was a great windstorm. In fact, it was so bad, we're gonna find out later that the disciples thought they were gonna die. Now, let's just hit, a, hit the pause button before we go any further. Let me ask you guys another question. How many of you, you can raise your hands, believe God is sovereign? Okay, I'll raise two. I absolutely believe God is sovereign. Okay, and so what you hear me often say, if this is your church home and you come every week, what you hear me often say is that God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal, and sovereign. He's omnipotent. That means God is absolutely all-powerful. He's omniscient. That means that God knows everything. He's omnipresent. That means that God is everywhere at the same time throughout the vast universe. You cannot run from God's presence. He's everywhere. He's eternal. That means he has no beginning and no end. He's always existed and he always will exist. And he is sovereign. What does it mean to be sovereign? I'll give you the modern vernacular. To be sovereign means that he is large and he is in charge. Okay, and the reason I stress that so much in my preaching, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, is because here's what I know. If you guys really can start to get a grasp of the God of this book, the larger your God is, the smaller your problem is. It's all about your focus in life. And so as, as believers, when we go through a storm, and by the way, it's not if we go through a storm, but as believers, when we go through a storm, we have got to put our trust in the fact that God is sovereign, that he has complete authority over that storm. Look at me, please, storm. The reason I'm doing this is because the word storm can be a metaphor for any difficulty that we go through in life. And so a storm could be a bad accident an illness or disease, a broken marriage, a wayward son or daughter, a lost job, a financial setback, a strained friendship, a broken friendship, a personal attack on our character. Someone begins to lie about you, gossip about you, talk about you behind your back a personal loss of someone we love or, or something that we love. And, and, I, and I could go on and on and on, but once again, storms can be a metaphor for any of these difficulties that we go through in life. So here's the big question. If God is sovereign, and he is, if God is large and in charge, and he is, if God has complete authority over all the events that happened in the lives of his kids, and he does have complete authority, then why would a sovereign God allow storms into the lives of his children? Well, I'm just gonna give you two reasons. There's a lot more, but two reasons. Number one, storms come to discipline us if you're acting like Jonah, or storms come to test us if you're, if you're just simply a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I could go into today about how God uses storms to shape us, and mold us into the image of Jesus Christ. Okay, I don't have time to get into all that. I just wanna focus, this is just part of the answer. I just wanna focus on these two things at this point in our message. Storms, they come to discipline us. If you're acting like Jonah, or to test us if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, many of you know the story of Jonah, so I'll just tell you the abbreviated version of the story. And so God told the Old Testament prophet Jonah to go to the wicked city of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire there around the eighth century BC. The Assyrians were the uh, superpower of the day. They were the enemies of Israel. They were Gentiles, of course. 
Uh, Israel were, were the Hebrews, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God told a Jewish prophet named Jonah, I want you to go up into Gentile territory to Nineveh, and I want you to preach repentance. Everybody please say the word repentance. It's the same message over thousands of years. God wants us to repent of our sins because our sins offend him. I was reading this week that there's some university up in Tennessee, and this week it's, um, they're, they're going to have a, a sex carnival at their school. This is the day and age we live in. Sodom and Gomorrah here in America. And so basically a big orgy at this university in Tennessee, and there's a debate as to whether the taxpayer's money is being used to pay for this sex carnival because they want freedom of speech. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, how bad does it have to get before God judges our nation? Think about that. Think about how different it is today than it was when many of you grew up. There's no doubt things are getting darker. There's no doubt things are getting worse. And our sin offends the Lord. And the message has always been repent. That, that message does not change. Whether we're in the age, the dispensation of grace or not, the message is shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer is God forbid. None of us will ever be perfect. But listen, when we have been, when we have died with Christ and been buried with Christ and now we're, we're, we're risen with Christ, we're supposed to walk in newness of life to accurately represent and to honor the Lord. That's what God wants. He wants to see a change. He doesn't want to see people say a little prayer and then keep acting the way they've ever acted. That is not the gospel. You cannot take repentance out of the gospel. And so God says, go. And Jonah says, no. Jonah's like, I'm not going up there to those Gentiles. You know why Jonah didn't go? Because he was a racist. He had prejudice in his heart. Many Gentiles in the Old Testament, they believed that, I'm sorry, many Jews in the Old Testament, they believed that the only reason God created Gentiles was to create fodder for the fires of hell. Racism. Prejudice, which, by the way, is alive and well in the church today. I'm so glad that in the beginning days of this church 14 years ago, those who helped my wife and I start this church, our prayer from the very beginning was, God, would you do something different in our church? Would you help us to be a church that attracts people from all different backgrounds, all different cultures, all different skin colors? Because up to that point, I had been to lots of churches, great churches, but when you look out, it's just like a sea of white people. And we wanted to see something different. And look around, God's done it. Can we thank God for what he's done in this church? It's an awesome thing. And so hey, the gospel of Jesus Christ commands us to love one another. As Christ has loved us, no matter what, our skin color or our background or our socioeconomic uh, uh, place that we came from uh, looks like. We're supposed to love one another. There, there, there cannot be any racism or prejudice at all ever in the church. And it's alive in our city too. It is so alive in our city. It wasn't too long ago, I was um, somewhere in poor St. Lucie and some guy drives up to him next, uh, next to me, I'd never seen him before, he puts the window down, he looks at me, and he goes, can you tell me where I can get a haircut from a white guy in our city? It's still alive and well. Racism is straight from the pit of hell. And ladies and gentlemen, we as the church have got to send a different message. God said go, Jonah said no, and what did he do? He fled from the presence of the Lord. Jonah ran from God. He went down to Joppa, which is on the eastern, if you guys can imagine the Mediterranean Sea on the map. Okay, so you got Israel here and Spain is here. 
Jonah was supposed to go way up to Assyria, which is northern Iraq, that way. Instead, he goes down to Joppa on the um, eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. He goes down into a boat, and the boat is head heading to Tarshish, which scholars believe is over here in Spain, over 2,000 miles away. He's going in the exact opposite direction of what God uh, told him to do. And so while they're sailing across the Mediterranean, check out what a sovereign God did. It says, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Now, who threw that great storm down on the Mediterranean Sea? Who did it? God did. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and it was so bad, the ship was about to break up. They were all about to die. And so there's a bunch of pagan uh, sailors on this ship, and they believed in um, all the uh, polytheism, all different kinds of gods, and so they're praying to all their different gods, and they cast lots to find out who on board is responsible for this judgment that's coming down upon us. And the lot fell upon, guess who? The Jewish guy down in the, down in the ship. Jonah comes up, he goes, I'm guilty. I'm a prophet. I serve the one true God, Yahweh. And I'm running from him. Throw me into the sea, and it'll all calm down. And the next thing you know, one, <laughs> two, <laughs> There goes Jonah. They're not going to die. And there he goes, flying through the air and crash, starts sinking down into the sea. And look what happens next. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and for three nights. Now, what you need to know from the time that Jonah decided he was going to run away from God, from that time, it was all downhill. The Bible says that he went down to Joppa, and then he went down into the ship. And the next thing you know, he's sinking down into the Mediterranean Sea. And then the next thing you know, he's going down into the belly of a great fish, down, 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 down. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, that is the direction for anybody who turns their back and runs away from the Lord. It's always down, down, down. Now, by the way, that's not always a bad thing because what's the old saying? Well, I wasn't going to say that, but that's good. <laughs> what goes down always comes up. I'll, I'll put that in my next sermon. But... The old saying that I was thinking of is some people must hit rock bottom before they ever look up. Some people hit rock, some people, they just got to go all the way down rock bottom before they ever are like, all right, I messed up, and there's only one way to look. And Jonah finally hits rock bottom. He's, I mean, how, how much lower can you go than the belly of a great fish in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea? And he finally looks up, and so praise God, he finally comes to his senses, and the next thing you know, in that little book of Jonah, in the middle of your Old Testament, it says, Jonah called on the name of the Lord. Jonah finally got right with the Lord. Long story short, he ends up going to Nineveh. I mean, it cracks me up every time I think of it, but um, the Lord causes uh, this, this great fish to feel like he needs some Pepto-Bismol, and next thing you know, he's like throwing Jonah up on the shore. Uh, you ought to read the Old Testament. It's filled with great stories that were, by the way, true, not fairy tales. And the next thing you know, uh, uh, Jonah is going up to where he said, I'll never go. He swallows his pride and prejudice, and he begins to preach repentance. And there's a spiritual awakening, and pagans turn from their sin, and God's hand of judgment is held back, at least temporarily in that point in history. But here's my point I want to make to you. Jonah finally got right with God, but he had to face a fierce storm. And he had to face a great fish before he was willing to repent. 
If you're running from God this afternoon, don't be surprised if God sends a storm your way. Not because he hates you, but because he loves you enough to discipline you so you'll turn around and you'll come back and walk with him. Now, most of you are here and you're saying, I love the Lord, I follow the Lord, I'm not perfect, but I'm a, I'm a disciple. I'm not, I'm not running from the Lord, okay? If that's you, then here's what I know. The first part of that previous point does not apply to you. God is not sending a storm, a difficulty into your life in order to discipline you. That doesn't apply to you. But the second half of that previous point does, in fact, absolutely apply to you and apply to me. And that is that God will, in fact, send storms into our lives in order to test us. Every time a good teacher gives material, that teacher wants to see if the student is learning the material. And the way that that happens is that teacher gives a test. And so storms, tests, are a part of the Christian life. It, it just kind of saddens me if it wasn't so funny. But it saddens me that so many Christians think, if I just accept Jesus, life's going to be smooth sailing. Lifestyles of the rich and famous. I can see my, my hair blowing in the wind on my yacht as I go out into the Atlantic Ocean. You see, so many Christians, they think that if they can get Jesus in their boat, then what's going to happen is they're going to experience health and wealth and prosperity. And by the way, that's sadly the message that some of these Christian TV stations is pumping out every single day. You want to know what the reality is? The reality is Jesus was in the disciples' boat. And the disciples were not experiencing health, wealth, and prosperity. They were in the middle of a massive storm. They were right exactly where they were supposed to be. God never promised to keep us from storms. He did promise to be with us in the storms. And that's what we see, right, in the next verse, verse 38. But he, Jesus, was in the stern. He was in the boat asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, the way I just said that was very mild compared to the way they said it to the Lord, believe me. They are freaking out. But did you notice Jesus is not bothered one bit by this storm? He's fast asleep. He's the picture of perfect peace. And so they wake him up, right? Teacher! Right? The wind's blowing. The water's coming in. Sky's dark. They're going up and down. Teacher! Right? Jesus wakes up. And you know what Jesus is feeling? Very disappointed in his disciples. You know why? Because the disciples lashed out at the Lord and they questioned his love for them. Don't you care? And so here's your next point. I want to talk about this for a little while because this is a great indicator of where you and I are spiritually. When we're squeezed by a storm, what is really on the inside will always come out. It's true. When you squeeze a tube of toothpaste... Whatever's on the inside, Crest, Colgate, Ultra Bright, right? Whatever's in there, when you squeeze it, it's going to come out. The disciples were being squeezed right now. What came out of the disciples? Panic, fear. They're freaking out. And you know what that indicated? That was what was inside of them. What does that indicate? that they have a lot of growing to do. And so the next time that we're squeezed by a storm, if fear and panic starts coming out of us, then we should know that we have a lot of growing to do. 
And I have a question for you. When you're squeezed, what comes out? Fear and panic or the fruit of the Spirit? When you're squeezed by a storm, just think about the last storm you were in, the last difficulty that you were in. When you were squeezed by that storm, what came out of you? Did you question the Lord? Did you lash out at the Lord? Did you question his love for you? If you're really sovereign, why is this happening to me? Is that, was that your attitude? If that was your attitude, then you need to know that you have a lot of growing to do spiritually. Now, I just want you to know I'm your friend. And true friends just kind of tell you like it is if you want to grow. The problem is some of you have friends, and when you go through a storm and you're squeezed and you're fearful and you're panicking, they're over there telling you, well, it's normal that you're afraid. It's normal that you're panicking. Look at what you've gone through. Of course you're going to freak out. And what they're doing, ladies and gentlemen, is they're, they're coddling your carnality and they're petting your sin nature. And God says, uh-uh. Fear, worry, doubt, panic, all that is of the flesh and all of that dishonors the Lord. And so when you're squeezed, just ask yourself, what is coming out of me? Is it fear and panic or is it the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy. Now, by the way, let me just say, crying tears, yes, that's part of the human experience. Sadness, yes, that's part of the, of the human experience. Disappointment, yes, 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 that's part of the human experience. But along with that sadness and those tears and the disappointment, there's a, a, a love and a peace and a joy, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and meekness, and self-control. It's there. And if that's what comes out, then what you need to know is that you, praise God, have been growing spiritually. God is doing a great work in you from the inside out. And so we move on now to verse 39. It says... As they're shaking and screaming, shaking him and screaming at him, questioning him. Verse 39, he awoke and he rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. That's amazing. And that's Jesus you see, usually storms, they take a little while to calm down. It takes a little while for the waves to die down. But when the creator of the universe spoke, immediately, just like that, it was a great calm. How many of you believe that Jesus is both the creator and the sustainer of everything? Right? That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible was not some hippie dude lived 2,000 years ago, all peace, love, and joy, didn't want to offend anybody. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible, uh, before the creation of the material universe, as I said last week, the Jesus of the Bible was already there before the creation of the universe. He's the co-creator along with the Father and along with the Son. I'm sorry, along with the Father and along with the Spirit. And so when the creator of the universe stands up and he rebukes the wind, and he rebukes the sea, it immediately stopped, and the Sea of Galilee became a sea of glass. So what does that mean? That means our Savior is greater than our worst storm. I just so wish I could help you to focus on the Savior instead of the storm. Because as I said earlier, the bigger your God is, the smaller your problem is. So perhaps you're here today and you're going through it. We would never know at church because when you come to church, you're supposed to sit and smile and be polite. How you doing? Praise God. <laughs> Everything is so good. And you're lying out of your teeth. 
that's why I had to say, when you guys asked me a little while, uh, a little while ago, how are you? And I said, I'm good. I can't lie, though. Hasn't been that great for my wife and I physically this week. We've been fighting sickness, like most of you have this flu season. But, but, but here's the thing. We would never know that you're going through it. Because on the outside, you have to have this image at church. But on the inside, God sees right in your heart, and he sees the tumultuous storm that's going on inside of you. Perhaps in your world, the sky is dark, the wind is howling, the waves are crashing over the bow of your life, right? And it's filling up with problems and crisis. And here's what you're doing. You're frantically trying to bail out a problem, bail out a crisis. But it seems like every time you bail one out, two more crises come in, two more problems come in, and you're feeling absolutely overwhelmed. Okay, I want to give you some really good advice. If that's you, here's the advice. Put the bucket down. Just put the bucket down. I know you can barely even stand up in the boat of your life. Put the bucket down. Make your way carefully back to the stern. That's where Jesus is. Go on to the back of the boat. Sit down next to the Savior. Put your, your hand on his shoulder. Stop focusing on the storm and just Focus on the Savior. That's the advice. Just focus on the Savior. And some of you may be thinking right now, but he's asleep. <laughs> I've been praying, and it seems like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Well, listen, it may seem that way. You may feel that way. That doesn't mean that that's a reality. The Son of God in human form may have been asleep in this passage 2,000 years ago, but he's not asleep today. Psalm 121 says that he who watches over you will not slumber, neither will he sleep. The Lord today, he's up in heaven and he's watching over you. He loves you. And so again, here's the advice. Stop bailing and start praying. Stop panicking and start praising. Stop trying and start trusting. Right? That's what you're supposed to do. Now, now here's what I know. When you're going through a storm, you don't feel like doing any of that. Why? Because when you go through a storm, you, you quickly get into the flesh. It's like that. It's amazing to me how fast we go from the spirit to the flesh, just like that. And so when you're going through a storm, the flesh kicks in, and you don't praising? Okay, pastor, you're telling me that when, I'm, when there's a crisis in my life, that I'm supposed to sit down and put on some praise and worship music and focus on the Savior? Yeah. I don't feel like doing that. Do it anyway. By the end of the song, your hands will be lifted up. Right? Wait a minute, you're telling me I'm supposed to start praying? I can't even think straight. You want me to pray? Yes. And you know what? The beginning of the prayer, it may 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes. It may feel like everything's just bouncing, coming back. But if you keep persevering in prayer, all of a sudden the heavens open up. How many times has this happened in our prayer lives? And the glory comes down. You got to stop focusing on the crisis and start focusing on the Christ. You got to stop focusing on the problem and start focusing on the promise. Where's your focus? And so look at the promise. Here's just one out of a thousand in the Bible. Look at Isaiah 43. Maybe God wants to give this to you in your storm. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. These are promises from God. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. By the way, you're going to get wet, but they're not going to overwhelm you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your what? Savior. You're not going to drown. He's your Savior. And so Jesus rebuked the storm. He said, peace be still. And there was a great calm. What happened? In the Bible, the storm ended. In your life, your storm is going to end. All storms end. The, 
The, the question is, are you going to trust the Lord during the storm? Now, the disciples, they did not trust the Lord during the storm. And so you know what happened to them? They got told. How many of you guys believe that true friends will tell you like it is? Okay, look at verse 40. And Jesus said to them, why? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? How did Jesus respond to the disciples freaking out? Here's how he responded. He rebuked them. He rebuked them for panicking. He rebuked them for their fear. He rebuked them for freaking out. And here's why. If you're with me, say amen right here. Listen, listen, listen. Here's why. Because the, the reason Jesus rebuked them is because the problem was not with what was around them. The problem was what was in them. The problem was not the storm that was around them. He can handle that. He's God. The problem was what was in them, their lack of faith. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got to come to the realization that a lack of faith, a lack of trust in God dishonors God. It dishonors him. Why? Because God wants us to know that he's trustworthy, that he's a man of his word, that he takes care of his children, that he's God. And when we freak out and we panic and we're afraid, that tells us we don't believe what he says. And that dishonors him. Is this, is this making sense to you guys? That's why these guys got told. After everything they had seen and heard, all the miracles of Jesus they've already seen, all the teachings of Jesus they had already received, these guys should have had stronger faith. Now, where does faith come from? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. That's Romans 10, 17. I think the ESV uh, says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Same thing. All right, so what was, this is important too, what was the Word of Christ to these men before the storm? Look back at verse 35. What was the word of Christ to these men before the storm? Verse 35, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. That was his promise. Okay, here's your point. When Jesus says we're going over, we can be sure we won't go under. Right? Is he a man of his word or not? Is he trustworthy or not? Is he going to do what he says or not? Are you going to believe? Am I going to believe or not? When God makes a promise, he always keeps it, no matter how bad things look. And if the disciples would have just believed his word in the middle of the storm, if maybe Peter, who's the leader, if he would have kind of stood up during that storm and said, hey, James and John and Thomas and Bartholomew, stop freaking out. He said to us back in Capernaum, let us cross over. So if he said we're going over, we're not going under. Don't freak out. Just sit down and let's ride this baby out. In fact, let's all, on the count of three, just turn around so we can change our focus from the storm to the Savior. Ready? One, two, three. Look to the stern. Jesus. And you know what would have happened? Jesus would have woke up, and he would have said, you passed the test. Well done, good and faithful servants. But instead of that, they shook him. Don't you care? They questioned whether he even loved them, and they failed the test. How do we apply this to our lives? we got to believe God's word in the storm. If you're not going through a storm right now, you need to believe the word before you get into the storm. You need to have something to hold on to before you get into the storm. God has a word for your future storm. God has a word somewhere in these 66 books. He's got a promise for your future problem. 
What you have to do is you've got to trust God that he's going to give you that word, and you need to spend time in the word to make sure you receive that from him. But here's, here's my, my, my concern for some of you, and that is some of you, you don't spend time in the word. So when you're going through the storm, you have nothing to draw from. And the only way you react is you freak out. And so I could go into all different topics and all kind of Bible verses that we can use for those topics. I don't have time, but I can point you to a resource. And so I'll point you to a very basic, this is like Christianity 101 stuff here. But it's the Billy Graham's Christian Workers Handbook. Okay, and so if you want to know some verses in God's word that can help you through some of the difficulties that you're going through, this is a great little investment um, that you can get. And so, for example, there's verses on doubt, divorce, loss of employment, financial difficulties, grief and bereavement, loneliness, suicide, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so you're going through your difficulty, you're going through your storm, you look up, and by the way, there's other books, good Christian books that go a lot deeper on those subjects, but this is just a basic what does the word of God have to say? You memorize those verses and you hold on to those verses as you're going through your difficult time. Last verse, verse 41. And they, the disciples, were filled with great fear, awe, and wonder at the creator of the universe. And they said to one another, who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Who then is this? He is Jesus Christ, God's son, the savior. Amen. That's who it is. And he's the answer to any problem you'll ever experience. And so Jesus was the master teacher. The disciples were his students. Every good teacher administers material teaches, and then after that teaching, every good teacher gives a what? A test. So what do you do before you take a test? What did you guys do in school before you took a test? You study, you reviewed your notes. Okay, so here's how we're gonna end. We're just gonna review our notes. This is what was on the screen earlier. But review, review the notes before the next test because the next test is coming. All right, storms come to discipline us. You need to... You need to Take a spiritual evaluation. Am I running from God? Because if bad stuff keeps happening to me and I'm not living for the Lord, well, guess why? God's trying to get my attention. Or that may not be you at all. It could be just the fact that you're a follower of Jesus and Jesus will test you to see what's inside of you, which leads you to your next note. When we're squeezed by a storm, what is really on the inside comes out. That's a great indicator of our spiritual maturity to see how far we've grown in the Lord. The next point, our Savior is greater than our worst storm. We just gotta focus on him. And then when Jesus says we're going over, we can be sure we're not gonna go under. So we gotta believe God's word in the storm. Write it out and then pass the test, trust him. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we wanna help. Visit our website at calvarypsl.com. Click on I'm new here, then knowing Christ.